Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Michael Schneider and discussed his research as well as the Primary Spine Practitioner Program. This week we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Henry Candelaria. Let's introduce today's guest. Dr. Candelaria holds a Bachelor of Physical and Health Education degree from the University of Toronto. In 2007, he graduated from CMCC Magna Cum Laude as a Doctor of Chiropractic. Henry has extensive experience in the field of manual therapy and managing complex cases of musculoskeletal pain. His professional passions include advancing the field of manual therapy through research, interprofessional collaboration, and developing opportunities to allow allied health professionals to maximally utilize their scopes of practice. He's been involved with the ISIC program in Ontario since its inception and was ISIC's Chronicity Prevention Clinic practice lead, as well as the program's practice lead in Toronto. Henry is also a consulting chiropractor for a local community hospital in Ontario. In his practice, he utilizes the biopsychosocial model as a basis for condition management. He's dedicated to helping patient, guide patients through the maze of healthcare options for the management of MSK pain through evidence-informed assessment, education, manual therapy, and exercise-based functional rehabilitation. Thanks for joining us, Henry. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. It's an honor to be on the show. I think the work that you're doing is, is wonderful in terms of knowledge translation and just you know connecting the community. And uh, as we were uh, chatting during that warm-up, um, this is, uh, again, the lineup of people that uh, you have had on the show and I'm sure we'll have on the show. It's just an honor to be um, asked to participate, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, as you know, we'll, we'll just jump right into questions because we have lots of things we'd like to talk talk to you about. Sure. Uh, we're, we're hoping, before we get into Isaac and, and all those good things, you do some really interesting work in a hospital setting. We're hoping you could tell us about uh, your work in a hospital-based setting and, and how did this opportunity arise. Yeah, um... So I'm uh, I'm I can, I'm a consulting chiropractor for the Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital in Oakville, where I, I live and practice, um, and that's been uh, I've been there for I think now since 2012 I want to say, um, and <clears throat> it's sort of molded um, into more of an associate type uh, position to doing specifically uh, uh, seeing people as part of a a lower back pain program that we run in affiliation with the emergency department there where we have direct referrals from the emergency department into the program. Um, uh, in terms of how it sort of came about, it really, it's, uh, it's <laughs> sort of dumb luck, as people say, um, and uh, a labor of, of, of love, I guess you can say. And it's sort of been my, my um, a project of mine that I felt always really passionate about and and I always felt that uh, we could play a role. And one of the people that was really influential in sort of pushing this type of initiative was uh, Dr. Deborah Kapansky-Giles, which I'm sure most, if not all of people listening to the show are familiar with. Um, she's uh, practicing at uh, St. Mike's with uh, Dr. Igor Steinman, also a visionary and sort of leader in the field of interprofessional practice. And they're, they're operating uh, and practicing out of the family health team there. And I remember distinctively in my third year um, at an Ontario Chiropractic Association event, um, sitting and listening to her and her description of the program, and I was like, man, that's exactly what and where I want to be. And I think that's exactly what and where the profession at least should open up doors uh, to allow you know, practitioners to enter into. And so that was sort of the push to have, uh, to try to sort of set this up. It wasn't easy, I will say. Um, 
it was sort of third time's a charm. I pitched a similar idea to other uh, hospitals. I spent some time with an orthopedic surgeon at another local hospital, and uh, unfortunately, funding fell through for that. And initially, upon graduation, I was uh, working part-time at a different rehab hospital. And <clears throat> again, funding fell through for that. So it was a bit of a couple of doors slammed before a window opened. Um, and I met a, a family friend who um, it was an internist there working at the hospital. And then from there, he put me in touch with uh, a different decision maker within the hospital who then put me in touch with the manager of rehab services and sort of the, 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 the opportunity flourished from there. Um, and then from that, we, uh, um, in time, there's a, it sort of coincided with the, the Isaac uh, rollout and my Isaac involvement, where uh, I saw an opportunity that I think, you know, was, was to, in my mind, uh, relatively obvious. And again, in chatting with uh, Dr. Kapansky-Giles, there was some discussion about trying to make something happen to alleviate and help support patients and, and the practitioners in the emergency department better manage patients who present with back pain. Um, and, uh, you know, legally in Ontario, in most jurisdictions, a person presents to the emergency department, they have to be seen by uh, a physician. Um, and there was initial talks about having chiropractors um, being the front line, and that was met with some resistance, and I think rightfully so, in my opinion. Um, in terms of, you know, the Canada Health Act and the wording around that, there isn't really going to be too much. I think it's a bit of an uphill climb to, to budge on that, although there might be room with, with um, different types of projects, et cetera. Um, in research settings, but there, anyways, that was we met. We were met with a little bit of resistance in that regard. So the idea was to develop. So to still have the patient obviously be triaged by and, and managed appropriately by the the person, the attending physician, and the team there. And then if it's deemed appropriate, or you know, once they're they've been sort of worked up and worked through, um, the patient is offered an opportunity uh, to be referred to the. Um, it's called an advanced practice. Um, uh, low back pain program. Uh, and in that process, they're booked in directly from the eMERGE. So similar to how a person would be booked in if they were to present to the emergency department with a, a broken arm, they would be booked in to see an orthopedic surgeon within 10 days in the fracture clinic. In a similar manner, they would be booked directly into my schedule to be seen um, within uh, a two-week period is sort of the timeline that we had. Initially, it was, it was you know, as soon as possible, but for reasons... Uh, that I sort of noticed it, would, it made more sense for the patient in terms of patient benefit to have them actually um, uh, be seen a little bit later to sort of let them kind of initially anyways run through the really acute phases. Like if people, and I've had this happen, people coming in on gurneys directly from the emergency department and I'm standing there with, you know, looking at them and thinking, what the heck am I going to be able to do <laughs> with, with you? You know, they're in significant pain. And, you know, I've tried initially, I, I, you know, I learned quickly, um, but I tried initially to do some things manually or at least demonstrate a few things uh, to them that they can do in terms of self-management. But I really found that quickly, I found this, um, that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't doing them any good because they were in such acute pain that I found it challenging to really do much with them. And so my practice at that point had changed and, and the emphasis was placed more on, you know, write out the pain, take the, the medication that you may have been prescribed by your, uh, by the attending practitioner at the eMERGE, um, put the fire out a little bit and then let's, let's, let's reconvene. 
And that I found to be a little bit more, um, more efficient and beneficial to the patient. So the patient is offered the, the, uh, an appointment to see me. Um, they're given information on the program and they're booked. And if they want to come in, then they're booked in to see me as part of the program. And the, pro the crux of the program really, and how you know, the pitch was sort of successful to the management of the hospital was it's, um, it's, it's trying to reduce the strain on the eMERGE, reduce the number of readmits to the eMERGE. And um, uh, trying to provide, you know, better patient care um, or more fulsome patient care um, uh, for patients who are presenting with benign conditions that feel terrible. I mean, they're in significant pain. That's the reason why they're presenting there. There's some significant concerns on their end. And thankfully, most of the time, uh, people present with benign back pain. But, um, you know, the eMERGE is there and they do an excellent job of it um, and they don't have it. They don't get enough credit. You know, it's there to save lives and to really help people who um, uh, who need emergency services. And, you know, back pain, generally speaking, for the most part, mechanical back pain is benign. Um, but appropriately managing that person is is key to reduce their likelihood of readmitting back to the eMERGE because that might be their only option. That might be what they're familiar with. That might be what they're comfortable with. They might not be able to access their primary care provider at the time, whatever it might be. But trying to sort of steer them away from reusing that and giving them a different option is, was one of the cruxes of it, reducing readmits and also closing the loop with, pri closing the loop with primary care. So be able to, being able to provide the patient with, you know, a detailed history, physical exam, a definitive and uh, a definitive diagnosis, um, and then relaying that back to the primary care provider and engaging them if needed, in terms of escalating uh, the patient's care um, to other you know specialists if needed, making specific recommendations in terms of things that they might want to consider should conservative care you know a trial of six to eight week conservative care whatever it might be six to twelve weeks whatever it is. Um, a trial of care, failing that, what they might want to consider in terms of appropriate management for the patient based on their presenting, based on their presentation, um, and that's 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 really the 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 sort of pitch, um, uh, and sort of the where the the success of the program has been hung. And what we've noticed, <clears throat> there isn't any documented evidence. I'm in the process of of uh, with a, a friend of mine, Dr. Nick Moser, um, a brilliant guy, and and uh, he's been. Um, uh, uh, keen on uh, publishing at least a case report um, on it, and I've been sort of slacking and <laughs> dragging my heels. Unfortunately, uh, life has a way of taking time away from um, things that you want to do professionally um, with other important things like family and that kind of stuff. So it's been a bit of a struggle in that regard. But we're trying to put out, and he's been pushing hard for it and doing a great job of it. Uh, at least a case report to describe the program a little bit more to get it sort of out there in the in the literature world. Um, so that it's a start, and then maybe seeing if there's other opportunities <clears throat> for a broader examination of the program in terms of evaluating whether, how much success it's there and trying to develop a bit more concrete data that we can sort of hang our hats on. Right now, we've demonstrated internally that there's been a reduction in the number of readmits going back to the hospital. Those patients who present to the back pain program tend not to go back, um, which is a positive thing, and I think it's something that um, you know we can hang our hats on quite confidently. Um, the other thing that I think is important is <clears throat> most of the referrals that I get from the emergency department, you know, the diagnosis is sciatica or back pain or my favorite lumbago, lumbago, however you pronounce it, <laughs> um, which is always a fun, uh, a fun word. Um, 
And, you know, trying to give a patient a little bit more specific diagnosis around that I think is important because it'll direct your care and you can be a little more specific and confident in terms of what you provide to the patient and, and what their outcomes might be. Um, and I've been fortunate enough also to work with a few specialists in the area. So if it's needed, I can expedite a f uh, referrals um, to those through those avenues to better support the patient in terms of their care or their condition. Bit of long-winded, but that's essentially the program. <laughs> no, it was fantastic insights. I mean, and are, it sounds like you're being referred primarily low back pain patients. Yeah, mostly they're expanding. They're looking to expand um, the the sort of the catchment of it. Um, uh, but right now the, the big thing is, is back pain. Um, and, uh, there's another chiropractor who's there who, um, by the name of Dr. Natasha Speedy, and she's great. Um, and, uh, we've been working to try to highlight the idea that, you know, obviously chiropractors do a lot more than just back pain. That's sort of the foot in the door. Um, but this idea that, you know, other things that come into the, to the eMERGE can also be managed uh, diagnostically and managed conservatively with, you know, through a chiropractor or a manual therapist for that matter. But obviously we're trying to demonstrate that us as chiropractors can do similar things that other manual therapists can also do. That's wonderful. I, I, would, I would imagine that your ability to, to diagnose and, you know, <clears throat> you know, be a bit more specific than lumbago uh, is, mm -hmm. is really valuable there too. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't want to knock the eMERGE. Again, they're, you know, is the person dying or not? And is the person needs significant intervention or, or, or not? And, and, and uh, that's, that's their role. So um, I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be taken out of context. I, I think that they, um, they do an excellent job, like I said. But again, um, once they've ruled out scary things and they're, they're comfortable and confident in their, you know, in terms of how and what they've picked up, that is outside of the realm of the emergency department, then, you know, they put, they put down a diagnostic, a diagnostic, a diagnosis that corresponds to a diagnostic code, I think. Um, and as a result of that, you get some of these um, sort of, I, I think, um, more generic type of diagnoses. And that's where our, I think our role can come in, where we can be, although non-specific low back pain isn't in my opinion, much better, but, um, you know, that's, that's a big umbrella. I think that's a big umbrella term as well that, that, you know, we might be able to be a little bit more specific in terms of what the source of the pain is by doing, you know, our own history, physical exam, functional examination, um, uh, and those types of things. I think we can come up with a, a little bit more specific diagnoses and therefore more specific intervention that will help the patient. But yeah, I think that, Again, you know, one of the pieces, a motivator for this in, in chatting with Dr. Kapensky-Giles and, and listening to her talk and, and seeing what she's been able to do. Um, and also, you know, knowing what we all as chiropractors have gone through and the torture that we've all gone through in terms of our training. I don't know about anybody, everybody else, but it was torturous for me. I mean, I love my time at CMCC, but it was, uh, it was you know, 80 hours a week, 40 hours of class, and then 80 hours uh, in total for, in terms of studying, et cetera, um, to learn the material. And it was intensive, and I know, I know what we go through, and I know what, what our diagnostic abilities are, and I, th I think that that, unfortunately, is still something that we're not known to do well. And I think we're trained relatively well to do that, quite well, in fact. And, you know, particularly through some of the extended program, even never mind the undergraduate program, 
you know, the DC degree, but especially with the residency programs, and I'm speaking specifically with respect to um, the CMCC-based programs because that's more what I'm familiar with, but in meeting other people who go, who have gone through similar types of um, diplomat programs or fellowship programs, it's the same sort of thing. Like there's a, a very high standard in terms of diagnostic ability that from an MSK perspective that I think is, as a profession, we haven't taken advantage of. You know, we haven't really pushed that. It's always been, you know, our hands are, are what sort of distinguishes us. And yeah, we're excellent manual therapists, but that takes, you know, outside of the of the training period that takes years to develop you know hand, hands-on motor skills takes years to develop and we're very very good at it but our diagnostic ability uh, at the starting line meaning when we graduate i think is far superior than a lot of other uh, manual practitioners um and i'm gonna get some flack from this from friends of mine in the other in other professions but um, I, I, I honestly do think that. I think that we, we're excellent at, you know, differentially diagnosing something scary from something not scary. And I think that as a profession, we, do, we don't do a good enough job in highlighting that ability, our diagnostician ability. Um, and I think now, especially, you know, there are third-party people that listen to that. And, and, you know, that really guides care. That's the first initial step. And if we can really be that uh, profession that acts as sort of, I don't like using the gatekeeper word, but in essence that, you know, uh, that we're sort of the first line and we set the person up for this is the diagnosis based on this, these findings, et cetera. I think the, that the systems will benefit. Um, the profession will obviously benefit in terms of elevating itself as, as, a, as a, a, an MSK expert. Um, and most importantly, I think patients will benefit because right now, you know, we can get into it a little bit, but right now people are waiting on ridiculous wait lists. Uh, and, you know, if you have somebody at the front line, like I, I, I uh, practice, um, I used to practice in a um, sort of, a, I guess you'd call it an advanced practice role within a physiatry-based community practice. And a lot of the referrals that were coming in from primary care practitioners, um, I wouldn't say a huge amount of, like a high percentage, but I would say maybe at least 30 to 40% of referrals didn't have to wait the three to six months to see the, uh, to see us in the clinic. You know, I, I, if, if, if there was somebody in the primary care setting that could quickly evaluate the person, um, it would save that, pra- that patient a significant weight on wait lists and also likely, a, uh, um, again, this is anecdotal, but hopefully reduce the person's likelihood of going down a, pa- a path of chronicity. So I think there's a significant role there. And I think as a profession, we don't do a good enough job. I think it's coming, but we don't do a good enough job of highlighting our diagnostic ability. Um, uh, and I think it's, you know, distinguishing yourself strictly based on manual therapy and using that, a tool that is in, and, uh, in a, in a number of different practitioners repertoire, um, that being manipulation, you know, there's a lot of other practitioners that do that and do it well, frankly, um, you know, and, and, and holding on to that as sort of our disti- distinguishing Feature, I think, is a detriment um, to the future of the profession. We have a significant skill set. In, in most jurisdictions, from what I know, diagnosis is included in that skill set. And I don't think we do a good enough job of highlighting that to, you know, whoever it might be, the public, um, third-party individuals, uh, government, etc. You know, I think there's a significant role to play there. And, and Henry, just before we move on to our next question here, I just want to state to our listeners, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, 
the work you do in a hospital setting, that's not publicly funded. That's something that it's kind of like a, a silo, like a practice of your own in the hospital setting. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the facilitators for the role um, was the fact that the hospital runs and operates um, a clinic within its um, boundaries, I guess you can say. So they have uh, like a fee-for-service rehabilitation clinic where they offer multiple services within that space. And, and within that space, I was able to see people on a fee-for-service basis, very similar to how any other community clinic would operate, um, with the exception that <clears throat> it was in a hospital. Um, and again, people are made aware that there is a fee. Um, occasionally, pardon me, occasionally there, there, there have been instances where, um, you know, they would present and there's an assumption that because there it's in hospital, it's covered under, under the provincial health plan here in Ontario. And unfortunately, you know, they would be told that it wasn't. And as a result of that, they would leave. And I've had that happen. Those are some of the, I suppose, barriers to, um, these types of programs, and some of the, I suppose, struggle that, you know, you, you might run into. Um, uh, because, again, funding is very hard to come by. And it, it, even setting up a, a pilot project is, is a difficult thing for a number of different reasons. Um, so not to say that we shouldn't push for that, but <clears throat> currently it's it's non-funded in terms of, you know, uh, any sort of outsized provincial funding. It's, it's funded by the patient via fee-for-service. You're uh, you're giving us lots of great material here today, Henry. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I like your point about you know chiropractors not emphasizing our our strengths as diagnosticians, but um, kind of moving more towards the treatment end of things. Uh, what can you tell us about like how important is it uh, to use guidelines and higher levels of evidence in your work, and how do you see those fitting fitting into the hospital hospital type setting? Yeah, I think. Um you know, I, I think maybe some of the barriers and, you know, the struggles that I'm sure, you know, the giants that preceded us um, experienced was this lack of evidence for what we do. And, and one of the big things anecdotally that I think people saw in their practices was the results that they were getting with patients presented with mechanical type symptoms. And the intervention was provided at the time was, and again, this is anecdotal, but from what I know, there was a big emphasis on manipulation. And so, um, you know, at the time it was probably a struggle, be I would, I've heard, and um, because there was a lack of that. And so the development of, you know, the, the, the significant increase in terms of hard evidence to, to indicate that, yeah, based on what's available out there, we, we do have some good evidence to suggest that, you know, our interventions from a manual therapy perspective do provide patients with relief. Um, you know, one of the things, so in a hospital setting, just to answer your question, instead of being so long-winded and indirect about it, <laughs> um, one of the, uh, one of the things that I think it plays a significant role in is, is, you know, improving our ability to really speak a language that is, fluently spoken in the healthcare realm and that being, you know, evidence, at least evidence informed, if not evidence-based, however you want to define either, um, uh, language and, 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 you know, discussing things around what the evidence suggests and what the evidence supports. And so I think in, in these types of settings, that's what, that's, that's the language, the, the, the currency, so to speak, in the language of choice. And so as a profession, it's, it's exceedingly important to make sure that, you know, we have that in our repertoire and, our, and it'll improve our ability to sort of not only um, 
uh, improve integration in those in those settings, but also allow us to demonstrate what we can in fact do for patients and you know system wide metrics as well. But obviously, you know the reason why we're all into it in in practice is to improve improve patient care. And so, you know, I think there there's a significant role for guidelines in hospital settings, but broadly, you know, in terms of the success of the profession as a whole, I think it's important to continue to support and uh, and uh, move these types of projects forward. One of the things that, I mean, we were talking briefly about this in, in, at the, in the introduction, but one of the things that I found, I suppose, frustrating with the state of the, of the literature that's out there is, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that suggests that um, manipulation, one thing that chiropractors are known to do, um, is good for mechanical back, neck pain, etc. Uh, but the question that I always that I that I sort of reverberates in my mind is well, what kind of back pain? And, and some of the other experiences that I've had is we try to get as specific as we can in terms of a diagnosis and 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 gear a specific intervention towards that diagnosis. But if you're, you know, if 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 your diagnosis is back pain then, you know, and you're applying the same intervention to every single presentation, you're going to have um, outcomes that will, will reflect sort of a shotgun approach. Um, and again, we were talking about this briefly uh, in terms of clinical prediction rules and, and improving um, our ability to not only, um, you know, our, our ability to be as specific as we can in terms of our diagnosis, but really matching that diagnosis with a specific intervention where we can confidently, um, you know, expect an outcome that that uh is is anticipated um and you know anecdotally i think with time you start to you develop that there's a pattern recognition that comes with practice and there's um there's uh you start to develop a bit of a of a skill set in that regard just with time and experience but it would be nice to have that uh to back up those anecdotal experiences or clinical practice experiences with documentation to suggest, yeah, this type of presentation or this type of patient will benefit well from this. With this type of patients, you generally want to avoid this. Um, and, you know, there's out there's things out there, but I think is if we can be a little more specific in terms of a clinical prediction rule, in terms of how people will, we, how we can anticipate how a person will respond to an intervention would be, I think, helpful for practitioners and for patients, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. It's a bit of a long-winded way to, to say it, but in terms of clinical prediction rules, I uh, sorry, um, clinical practice guidelines, I think it, it it sort of elevates our language and our ability to communicate with others in those types of settings in the language that they understand. And um, being able to to demonstrate and to show that we do have that level of evidence um, available to back some of the things that we're uh, doing, I think is important uh, to the success of you know further integration into professional practice. As a profession, I think it's on us to um, continue to improve that process and, and um, explore uh, other types of clinical prediction rules. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, the CCGI has been excellent uh, in terms of its vision, I think. Um, uh, with that, full disclosure, I'm an Ontario Chiropractic Association board member, and we fund the, um, the CCGI, but... I'm a very staunch uh, a supporter of it, even without that um, that position. Oh, and, and CCGI appreciates that, believe me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think I think you make a really good point there. I think uh, interprofessional education is is just another one of those areas that uh, the guidelines can be really really helpful for 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 clinicians. So, uh, no, you you make a great point. 
going back to something that we we had on our most recent our most recent interview with Dr. Schneider was uh, we talked briefly about the ISIC program. I think some of our listeners will have some familiarity with it or have heard, at least heard about the program, but they maybe don't know many details. And you've been quite involved. What what can you tell us about it? Um, you know, the Isaac program was uh, uh, serendipitously came around at the right time. I was in a stage of my career where I was um, looking uh, for some direction. I think it kind of uh, it kind of gave me that a little bit more, um, you know, uh, reaffirmed uh, a path that I wanted to take and allowed for gave me an opportunity where I, I think uh, I was able to sort of learn and leverage. A different skill set that I felt was, again, just going back to the diagnostic piece, that I felt was um, underemphasized. Um, Isaac's been around, Isaac stands for, it's a bit of a mouthful, but Isaac stands for the Interprofessional Spinal Assessment and Education Clinics Program, ISAEC. And uh, it's been around since about 2012, late 2012, and I've been, I've been, I've had the opportunity or the opportunity to work with it since its inception. Um, it's the sort of uh, brainchild of uh, someone who I, who I hold in very high regard, Dr. Raja Rampersad, out of uh, Toronto Western Hospital, brilliant surgeon and uh, visionary in terms of um, this type of a program. And from what I've heard, it's been a wor- in the works since you know 2008. So you can imagine the legwork that's been, that he's been involved with. That I had some, I had the opportunity to spend some time with him in the clinical setting and. And uh, learned uh, quite a bit from him and, and just to see, I mean, forget the mechanical stuff, just to see some of the other things that he would do with other types of back pain presentations. Well, he does a ton of cancer um, surgeries um, and, uh, and some of the reconstructive stuff that he was able to do, just mind-blowing. Um, anyway, so specific to, to Isaac, um, again, I think it gave an opportunity for uh for manual therapists to demonstrate their skill set beyond manual therapy um, includes the program itself includes chiropractors and physiotherapists and um, uh, who are essentially triage, triaging patients who are referred to um, to from their primary care provider to these practitioners. And the way that it was set up, <clears throat> I think it was sort of this decentralized approach where patients are seen in the community, which was a new concept where patients don't necessarily have to be... So if the patient wanted to get, or the primary care provider was concerned, they wanted an opinion in terms of what to do with the patient who had lingering back pain for more than six weeks, but less than a year, um, and they wanted uh, a quick opinion in terms of what to do, they would refer into Isaac and the practitioner would evaluate them based on a standardized examination um, and their own sort of little spin uh, with respect to what whatever they might have been exposed to clinically um, and that information would then be sent back to their primary care provider and if needed the patient would be escalated on to further specialist consultation and and or imaging um, and I'll tell you that you know less than uh, 10% of patients actually went down that path so about you know the numbers are consistent with what's out there in the literature about 80 to 90% of patients don't require those advanced interventions and there isn't anything yet documented or published on it yet, with the exception of, I think, um, a couple of abstracts. Um, uh, but what I've seen is that uh, essentially those are the numbers, that you're, you're looking at 80 90% of patients didn't have to go through that path. And, and there's literature out there that suggests that 80 90% of patients don't have to see 
um, uh, you know, specialists or do, do not require um, uh, advanced imaging for most back pain complaints. Um, and when it is required, you know, Isaac is able to sort of expedite that. So the wait time right now in the GTA, the Greater Toronto area, the GTHA, I would probably even say Greater Toronto Hamilton area, um, is about anywhere from six to 16 months to see a surgeon. Um, and some people have it shorter. Some people have it beyond two years and they've closed their practice to referrals. And I, what Isaac does is as, as part of the program and as a result of the way the program is set up, you see somebody quickly within two to four weeks of referral. So patient presents a primary care provider. And so long as they meet the inclusion criteria, which is, which is in my opinion, extensive and extensive for a reason, um, we're trying to, again, pick patients that will respond well to the type of intervention that's being provided by Isaac. If they fit that criteria, they're seen after referral within two to four weeks. And then after that, they are managed. Um, it doesn't include manual therapy currently. There are discussions about how that would work with um, uh, a group that I've been involved with. Health Quality Ontario is looking at evaluating and trying to develop some different arm of managing patients who aren't surgically appropriate and who are not, who do not require imaging. So the vast majority of patients, what do you do with those patients who are referred in and don't require that? They're provided with education currently. They're provided with education, reassurance, detailed review of what their condition is, if needed, pain education is provided. And then again, closing, ensuring continuity of care and closing the loop with primary care is a big one. If they do need other interventions, other, if there's, if there's a requirement to consider more, uh, more of a path of pharmacotherapy without going into the details of pharmacotherapy, given the scope, that's some, sometimes suggested as well as, you know, consideration for other interventions, including referral for uh, rheumatology or, or physiatry or some other pain intervention that may be needed beyond the Isaac piece. There are off-ramps for that uh, that are, are loosely um, associated with Isaac in certain, in certain jurisdictions, and that's going to become more of a, an emphasis as the program rolls out. But really, it's, 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 um, it's designed as, as um, a, a program that's, you know, that, that allows for quick access to somebody that can help direct the patient appropriately and help support primary care in a quick manner. Um, primary care is swamped, you know, primary care providers are, <clears throat> are dealing with everything. And some of the stories that I hear, it's amazing the work that they do. And, uh, it's no wonder the rates of burnout and, and that kind of stuff in, 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 the, in that, in that profession, um, they deal with a lot. And, and, uh, I think if we can help support, uh, and offload some of the, some of the concerns that they may have um, with respect to back pain in, in the instance of Isaac, but also broadly with MSK. Um, generally, I think that, you know, it would be a huge, a huge benefit to primary care and, again, ultimately a huge benefit to the patient. I've heard about this program, and I actually i have used some of the, the patient materials before. Um, and, and one of my thoughts is how can this model, like in your opinion and your perspective how, how could this model be replicated in, you know, in other cities or provinces should it be replicated you know, you know what are your thoughts on that yeah I mean I think I think it it serves it serves I think its purpose very well and I think because it's it's what it's supposed to do is very well defined it gets I mean you know there's a lot of there's 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 certain people out there that that may criticize it for for not providing you know 
what we would traditionally consider to be, you know, rehab. Okay. So including like manual therapy and facility-based care, et cetera, et cetera. And, there, and it gets a little bit of flack for that. And it's again, and, and it, things are, I think there's at least discussions being had about how to incorporate and better support the patients who don't need, you know, imaging or, 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 or a quick referral to see a specialist, et cetera. Um, who are the vast majority of patients, but, you know, because it's so well-defined, it does, it, 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 it meets its deliverables really well. And it's the deliverables are essentially reducing wait times, wait time one specifically to see somebody and to see a specialist if needed, and also wait times for imaging. When I say wait time one, I mean, you know, the initial wait to see a specialist. And if there's an intervention that has to be had, that's another wait. So that's sometimes considered wait time two, et cetera. And if there's follow-up, wait time, three, whatever. So, um, you know, at, at the very least, getting the person in front of somebody that can guide them uh, uh, and give them some information in terms of what they might be experiencing. And, you know, I'll, I, anecdotally, I've experienced this. I don't, I don't put my hands on – I mean, I do as part of the physical exam, but traditionally as a manual therapist, you're, it's very hands-on uh, treatment that you're providing. My treatment, quote-unquote, to this, these people are essentially, you know, just trying to be a um, – just confidently telling them that and reassuring them that this is what you have, this is what you don't have, and this is what you should be focusing in on, and this is what you should avoid, um, and this is what you don't really have to worry about, you know. Um, so trying to give people that confidence and, and, and reassurance that their condition is manageable, it's managed usually through conservative intervention and care, uh, and giving them improving the confidence of self-management is a, is a big win. And so in terms of, you know, so in other jurisdictions, if there are those problems, then I think that this and those problems being, you know, long wait times for imaging, um, uh, lack of funding or extensive funding for imaging and, and, and um, lack of resource or accessibility to uh, a very highly coveted resource, that being a specialist for an opinion, then this program, I think, could fit the bill and models like it, you know, frankly, where it, it, it acts because it's very well designed. And, and again, the people that were involved with the, the, the design of it, uh, Dr. Rompersad being one, um, another chiropractor by the name of Dr. Andrew Bidos has been heavily involved since the beginning as well. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. Um, uh, Marcia Coriali, uh, who is a physiotherapist and, and uh, a wonderful practitioner and brilliant in her own right. And um, uh, the other um, uh, pro project managers and, and, and program leads within the program, you know, they're very definitive in terms of what it does. And it helps to reduce wait times for these specific interventions. And, and hence the reason why it's been very good, I think, and successful in terms of demonstrating its impact uh, based on those metrics. And, you know, third-party people listen to that. And when I say third-party people, I mean, you know, government and and people who pay for these services, especially in, in a publicly funded system where funds are, um, you know, you have to really fight for funding um, to be able to demonstrate confidently that you're, one, you have a significant condition, you have a condition that significantly impacts people globally based on burden of disease alone, and it competes with some other scarier things um, in that regard. Uh, and you can d deliver something and say confidently that, yeah, if, if with this program, we can confidently say that, you know, it, 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 it meets these outcomes and it meets these, these, um, uh, expectations. I think that speaks volumes to people who are in decision-making positions and who are, you know, are holding sort of the, 
the purse strings, so to speak. Um, Especially so the, 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 the decrease in imaging costs and and, yeah. uh, and costs for, for surgeon, because fewer people are needed requiring appointments to see their surgeon and requiring yeah. imaging, then that's a huge motivating factor, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, in, in the settings that I've been in, just to give some context, we'll go back to the emergency department first. What To walk into the, emer- like you walk through the sliding doors that open in front of you, that's 500 bucks. Okay, that's before anything has been done. You sit in front of the nurse, the the, the nurse who's who's there to to you know to help direct you and determine what services may be appropriate for you. You know that's it's five hundred dollars before you see before you see anybody. So having people in in these positions to help offload these these very expensive um, interventions and coveted in, interventions um, and resources is very important. And you know to see. Um, the time with a surgeon is, is, is expensive as well, but imaging is a big one. You know, imaging is, is depending on the type of MRI that you're doing, it's anywhere from six to 700 bucks to a thousand dollars a picture. And, you know, if we can, that's, that's a lot of money. And if we, and oftentimes as, as we all know, you know, imaging is actually might be detrimental to a person's outcome. Just having a picture and having the patient read through what the radiologist is legally required to report on, but without having the clinical context, that's where the, the, the health professional and the health practitioner comes into play, is giving the patient context. And I, I, I can count the I can't count the number of times that people come in and say, you know, even as soon as we sit down, here's my MRI, and look what it shows. And and I have to take a step back and say, well, hold on a second, let's 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 take a couple of steps back and let me try to give you context in terms of what that means because that might not be of any help and i will have to say that honestly you know when they're reading things like you know i blew out my disc at this level meanwhile they have a completely different uh presentation irrelevant or, or sorry um uh that doesn't really match with with what the imaging uh shows that that sometimes makes them look at me like i have four heads on my shoulders because they're thinking well the picture shows this how can it be not how can it not be related to that so giving patients those that context um, and ultimately, reducing costs to systems is 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 uh, is important. Sorry, I'm going on a bit of tangents here and bouncing all over the place, but I think it sort of speaks to the dynamic pieces that are that are in play with these types of programs. Yeah, no, I, I think all these all these points tie together too in the work you're doing. There's a lot of overlap and and um, between them. So. Yeah, I feel like we could probably talk for for hours about all of this. You're doing such interesting yeah. work, and, and <laughs> some of these models, I, I really hope that we can learn from and adapt in other parts of not just Canada but throughout the world. And I'm sure there are other similar programs that we haven't heard about that haven't been published or haven't been reported on. So um, we, we should we should probably wrap things up there. Yeah, but, sure. But I, I really like to thank you for your time, Henry. This has been a real pleasure to to speak speak with you today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity again, guys, and and uh, keep up the good work because I think it, what you're doing is 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 awesome to see. So I pre- again appreciate the opportunity and and to be uh, mentioned in the same sentences as some of the other people that you've had on the show is just uh, it's a humbling experience. Thank you for it. Well, it's a pleasure, and and for the, those listening, we want to encourage you to to learn more about the Isaac program if you haven't done so already. So uh, just type in isaac.org isaec.org and that will take you to the website with um, more information, educational material, uh, exercise videos, some really interesting content there. So feel free to take a look.
Yeah, and you'll see uh, like uh, probably colleagues of yours that are on that uh, list just demonstrating the um, the ability of chiropractors have to play that role there. I mentioned a few of them, but the list is is exhaustively represented on the website. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, thanks again, Henry, for uh, for joining us, and and you know we'd like to encourage you to keep up the great work that you're doing. It's it's hard to believe how much you've been able to do, and you've really only been in practice for about ten years now, so you're. At, uh, you're you're doing great. Just keep keep going, and and thanks again to our listeners and for tuning in. And we look forward to bringing you our next guest in a few weeks. Bye for now.